looking forward to Pastor Tom being back here and resuming in Colossians chapter 3 again. Give all these nice people to tune in over the internet a break from me, and uh, that'll be great. (laughs) We're all looking forward to that. (laughs) Well, it is Mother's Day, and and I thought that um, before we get started in the study here that I would just share a, a Mother's Day poem with you to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> M. M is for the many things she gave me. O. O is for the other things she gave me. T. T is for the things she gave me. H. H is for all the helpful things she gave me. E. is for everything she gave me. And R. Well, that's for the rest of the stuff she gave me. You put them all together, they spell mother. Now, that sounds like for a rotten, spoiled kid wrote that. Thank you. That was me. No. <laughs> uh, actually, if you're a mother, you kind of understand your life is totally put into giving. Uh, my wife has said that if you are a selfish person and you have kids, it just rips the selfishness right out of you. You have these people, they're little people, they need help, they can't take care of themselves, they can't do anything, and they totally rely on you, and even no matter what you feel like or what time of day, you're just constantly giving, and we appreciate the giving of the mothers. Um, So you all, we just trust the Lord to bless each one of you. Now, last week we talked about, normally in, in Calvary Chapel, we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Uh, Last week, however, we looked at the fact that Christ is worthy. He's worthy of uh, all of our worship and adoration and everything else. Uh, He's worthy. But today we're going to look at he is holy. And so we're actually going to be going to Psalm 99, but it's going to be a little while before we get there. But if you want to just find it and have it ready, that'll that'll be okay. Uh, We'll eventually get there. So let's let's pray over the the study time. Father, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful... um, for your blessing on it. We're thankful for the work of your Holy Spirit, and we ask now that this would be about you, that this would be about the work of your Spirit, that it would be about your work in our lives, that it would be the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, It has very little to do with uh, uh, anything else. We want this time to be yours. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach and that you would lead and that this will all be done to the glory of Jesus, and we ask this in his name. Amen. The most elemental thing about God is that he created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in them. And in fact, when we have um, places in the Bible where people talk to others, and like, for instance, we just uh, studied Jonah on Wednesday nights, and whenever the sailors on the ship asked Jonah about his God, they were all crying out to God because of this tremendous storm that had come upon the sea and he said he served the lord and i don't know if they gave him a blank look but he went on to say he's the one that made the heavens and the earth the sea and everything in them and that's the starting place uh whenever paul was at the uh at mars hill and he's he says you you have the statue to the unknown god well i'm going to tell you about that god he's the one that made the heavens the earth the seas and everything in them and so this is always the um entry place for somebody who doesn't know anything about God. In fact, when we're reading his word every year, when we start back in the Genesis chapter one, again, the very first thing we learn about God is that he's the creator. He's the creator of all things. And so it's not unusual that when people want to get rid of 
their accountability to God that they will attack the fact that he has created everything. And so they come up with an idea like evolution. And uh, I know that's the British way of pronunciation, but I like the way it comes off better, evolution. Because God created everything. It didn't come from nothing. It didn't happen accidentally. It wasn't a matter of explosions. It wasn't a matter of mutations. All those things always work to destruction, not to construction, not to, to building, to creating things. Uh, but basically, it's the old, uh, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my daddy syndrome. And so that's why they come up with stuff like this, because this is one of the most elemental things that we know about God is that he created. And I like Psalm 104 back in my from way back in the days when I was uh, backpacking back in the 70s and uh, just really enjoying nature. And uh, Psalm 104 really stood out. It was about nature. And he says, surely in wisdom you have made all things. And he has. He's given understanding to his creation. Birds know how to make nests. How did they learn to do that? Well, God has put it in them to know that. Uh, he's put it in some animals to bury food or store food for the winter. He's put it in other animals to just eat everything they can and put on all the weight because they're going to sleep through winter. Or he has other animals that travel hundreds of miles or even thousands of miles. And so God has built into his creation certain things, and he built into man as well. On the sixth day he made man, and he made man male and female, and he made them in the image of God. He goes on to say that he formed man. And this is the same word that's used for, uh, sometimes it's translated as potter, but it has to do with squeezing and it's molding. And it's, he formed man. So he got down in the dirt and he, he put this, he formed man from the dust of the ground. Now, of course, the word for man there is Adam in Hebrew. And he formed man from the dust of the ground. And the ground is Adama. Now, is that a coincidence? No, Adam and Adama, he, man was formed from the ground. And when we die, we go back to being dust of the earth or dust of the ground again. And then he took something from his side. He put him to sleep, took something from his side. We traditionally refer to this as a rib. Um, and he built. And it's not the same word where he just squeezed things together. He, he built. One translation says fashioned. I don't know if that's a good translation, but, uh, but that's okay. It's, uh, but he did. He built a woman. And as Adam woke up and... God is walking his bride down the aisle and he sees his bride for the first time. He says, whoa, man. And so the feminine gender has been known as woman ever since. In English, <laughs> actually, in Hebrew, what he said was, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was formed or came from Ish. Uh, Ish is the word for man. Isha is the word for woman. The most common words for man and woman, Isha, um, which is just a feminine form of the word for man, Ish. And Adam called her name Chava, which is like a good translation. That would be life. He called her life because she's the mother of all the living things, uh, human race, that is. And um, so man and his wife are made in the image of God. And as a result, God gave to his creation of man and woman, uh, certain attributes. He made some things similar in us. Uh, out of all creation, he made us to be the image bearers. We are made in his image. Think about that. We're made in his image, and this is why sin is so bad. We're made in his image, and when we sin, when we lie, when we mistreat somebody else, we are bearing false testimony 
against God because we bear his image. In fact, if you want to look at it that way, our sin is actually a slander against God. But as image bearers, he put into us to be creative. God created, first he created stuff from nothing, the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in him. But then he took some of that, like the ground, and made man. Took something from the man and made woman. So he'll take things that he's already made and build on that. And he gave it to us to be creative too. But we've created, or we've corrupted, we've corrupted this gift of creativity by unholy creation. We devise evil. Um, and so we, we've corrupted it. But we're made in his image. God gave us the ability to love. But man in sin has corrupted this attribute of God too, to unholy love. Now, agape, love, a lot of times I hear that described. The fact is I not too long ago saw a blog where somebody's writing about agape love. That's God's love, and only Christians can have agape love. And, and I don't usually do it. I usually even avoid reading them, but all the comments at the bottom. <laughs> I went ahead and made a comment on this, and I said, okay, well... And I quoted what they said about, well, it's God's love. Agape love is God's love, and, and it's only available for, for, uh, for Christians. And I said, you may want to check out some of these verses. And uh, first, let me define what is agape love. You can say agape love is God's love, and that's true. That's like saying apple is a fruit. That's true, but you can't turn it around and say fruit is an apple. Well, it could be another fruit. And in the same way, uh, God's love is agape love, but that doesn't mean that... Um, that's the definition. What is agape love? Agape is prioritizing so highly a thing, the thing loved, that you would sacrifice of yourself for that. And certainly that does describe God's love, that he loved us, prioritized us to the point where he was willing to sacrifice himself. He gave his son to die for us, and so he does sacrifice for us. But is it, in fact, then something only Christians can have? Well, if you look at John 3.19, this is the gospel according to John 3.19, it says, Jesus is speaking. He said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men loved the darkness. That's agape. The priority was on the sin. The priority for the sin is so high that they would sacrifice eternal life, joy, peace with God, sacrifice whatever it to keep their sin. Second Timothy 4.10, For Damas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Damas was a, a fellow worker with Paul, but he left Paul and left his calling to minister in order to, we don't know what the love of the present world, whether it was riches, whether it was pleasure. We don't know what it was that persuaded him to turn away from those things, but he was willing to sacrifice these things, his walk with God, his ministry, uh, in order to love the agape love, the present world. <clears throat> Second Peter 2.15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Something he was willing to sacrifice for. Balaam was willing to sacrifice the lives of people of Israel by bringing uh, fornication, adultery into the camp of Israel. And uh, he loved the wages of righteousness and was willing to sacrifice for those things. 
Also, like God, he gave us the ability to be angry. And indeed, some things should make us angry. Rape, torture, abortion, child predators, child pornography. I mean, there's, just, there's lots of things that should just make us angry. But we have also corrupted this attribute that comes from God in, the, in that we have unholy anger. We are much more likely to get angry about the guy that cut us off in traffic than we are to, to be angry about the things that I've already mentioned. We should be angry about these other things because they exploit the weak and the vulnerable, and we should protect the weak. But we are more often guilty of unholy anger, <clears throat> selfish anger. And when we think of God's attributes, usually the first one mentioned is love, but that is not his primary attribute because we also know that he is also just. And if his primary attribute was love, then that means his just justice would have to be a loving justice. Well, if you made justice his primary attribute, well, then his love would have to be a just, a just love. And it just there seems to be some conflict in the attributes of God uh, by trying to determine what his primary attribute might be. Normally, whenever you're t- like in home fellowships, I've asked people, we'll just start naming some of God's attributes. And usually you end up with a name uh, with a list like this, where uh, God is love. He's gracious, merciful, forgiving, patient, compassionate, kind, powerful, just, faithful, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, transcendent, wise, light, jealous. Amen to all those. God is all those things. All of those are his attributes, but none of those are his primary attribute. These are some of these attributes he shares with us, but he doesn't share. There's a lot of these he does does not share with us. For instance, we are not omnipotent. We are not um, omniscient, all-powerful or all-knowing. But these still are not his primary attribute. How do we know what his primary attribute? attribute is well the hebrew language uses emphasis uh, or uses repetition for emphasis and so uh, we saw this in the book of jonah just uh, both in both weeks that we were going through jonah the last two wednesday nights for instance um, last wednesday we um, saw that after god spared nineveh that it was evil to jonah a great evil. We have this emphasis of the words ra'ah, evil, and it was a great evil. And so it's emphasizing how evil Jonah perceived this to be, how bad it was perceived by him. Um, the people, they feared a great fear. And so we see this emphasis again by repeating the word over again. Sometimes Jesus said verily or truly or amen. Uh, sometimes he said amen, amen, or truly, truly. Uh, When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, If anyone, even an angel, comes down and gives you another gospel other than the one that we declare to you, they are accursed. They are anathema. And then the very next verse he says, Let me say that again. If anybody comes with a gospel other than the gospel you received, they are anathema. So we have this repetition again for emphasis. And there's others. The book of Revelation, we have the eagle in the sky saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. But we also know it's because there's three, three things happening that are, are uh, going to be pretty bad. Um, Elijah on Mount Carmel, whenever the fire fell and, and uh, the people saw that Yahweh is God, that's what they said. The Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. 
So they repeated that. <clears throat> Jeremiah 7.4. Jeremiah said that God was going to destroy Jerusalem. And they said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Meaning, this is where the temple of the Lord is. And God's not going to bring destruction on his own temple. But that is indeed what happened. But they said it three times to emphasize it. And then in Hebrew, there's also a grammatical uh, item called um, the infinitive absolute. And we really don't have anything like it in English. One of the features or functions, rather, of the infinitive absolute goes like this. You did something and you made the king angry and the king wants to kill you. And he says in Hebrew, it would be directly translated, to die, you will die. Our translation smooth that out to you will surely die. But it's emphatic, but it's repeated to die, you will die. You will surely die. Or you can be saying to somebody, uh, I am going to go to a certain place, but you want to make it emphatic. So you say to go, I will go. And so that makes it emphatic. That's, uh, and of course, in the English translations, it's going to smooth that out too. I will surely go to show the emphasis there. And so we see that repetition is a, uh, is a means of emphasizing. And this is carried on through not, not only through the Hebrew scriptures, but even into the church today. And that's why some of the teachings get so long is because we repeat things to emphasize them. Foul on Steventon, personal foul. <clears throat> Okay, so his attribute of holiness, which we didn't even list in the first list up here, that's his only attribute that is emphasized by repeating it. And it's repeated not just once or twice, but it's, it's said three times. And to repeat that he is holy, that happens three times in Scripture. So we see the repetition of holiness three times, and we see that event or that, that type of repetition three times. Last week, when we were looking at the throne room and the worship of God, we saw the four living creatures, and it says in Revelation 4.8, they do not rest day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Now, is God love? Yes, he is. But it never comes up and says, God is love, love, love. For God is just, just, just. For God is might, might, might. For God is anything else three times. His holiness is the only thing that's emphasized by stating it three times. Um, and so Revelation 4, 8 is one of them. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Another one that we see, uh, this place where we see this happen, is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And I'm just going to flip over there real quickly here. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. A seraph, the Hebrew word, the root of that means flaming. Um, and so the seraphim would be the flaming ones. Above it stood the flaming ones, the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it goes on to say the doorposts shook and everything. And, and Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am undone. Of course, undone doesn't... Undone means he thought he was done. It's like making your bed and then 
somehow your bed gets torn up, you know, and then say, okay, you got to make your bed. Your bed is undone because it was once done. He said, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Well, then one of the seraphim comes and deals with him for cleansing, and then he gets God's commission. He said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he said, here am I. Send me. And just... That's really what I want us to see is that here's another place where God has uh, is declared as being holy, holy, holy. It's uh, is this attribute of God is emphasized. I just want to point out to the very next thing that he um, gives to Isaiah after he said, Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. He says, go tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. The reason why I wanted to read that is because we've seen this throne room scene of God that he's being declared by the seraphim as being holy, holy, holy. But then we have this message of of, uh, Isaiah, and it's quoted in the New Testament in the book of Uh, Gospel according to John, chapter 12, it says um, that the people were not believing in Jesus, even though he did the signs, they didn't believe him. And um, therefore, uh, Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn and I should heal them. That is a quote from Isaiah's commission in Isaiah chapter 6. But then John goes on to say, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Oh, what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 with the seraphim and the proclamation of holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, according to John, was seeing Jesus. That's cool. This is a place where Jesus is directly called Yahweh. And so there's just a little bit of uh, apologetics information for you that Jesus is called Yahweh. So that's the second place where he is um, called holy, holy, holy. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, "Teach." Uh, he, he said, "This is how you pray: Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We should be regarding God's name as holy forever. God's name should always be revered and associated with holiness, but." Again, in our society, we uh, have corrupted this. We do not use the word holy in a holy way. We've corrupted the word holy. Uh, We don't take the word holy seriously. Uh, Holy is used in reference to smoke or to a cow or to mackerel or to Toledo. (laughs) Or if you watch the old 60s Batman series, Robin was declaring just about anything and everything holy. And the thing is, none of these things are inherently holy. None of them are. These are just euphemisms. What does holy mean? It means otherness, means transcendence. It means separatedness. I don't even think that's a real word. Separateness um, is probably a real word. Separatedness. But it does mean that. (laughs) His holiness brings harmony to all of his other attributes. So when we talk about the fact that he's loving, his love is a holy love. The fact that he's just, his justice is a holy justice. All of his attributes find harmony in his holiness. Some people say, well, my God is a loving God. 
Well, how many are there? Are you a polytheist? The God of the Bible is mostly, above all, he is holy. And he is also loving and he is also just. And his holiness brings these things into conformity and to, to harmony. So they say, well, but my God's a loving God. Well, tell that to Uzzah. Uzzah was the one that reached up and touched the Ark of the Covenant and God struck him dead. Or tell that to Nadab and Abihu, um, Aaron's sons. God sent fire and, and killed them because they were desecrating uh, his temple. And, and um, Well, this is when God told Moses and Aaron, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the nations, I will be honored. I will be treated as holy. And when his priests wouldn't do it, he moved them out of the way. You could also talk about Korah and Dathan and Abiram, um, others that God had to deal with severely. God will be just, but he was not unfair. He was not unholy. Uzzah, when he reached up and steadied the ark, God had said, don't touch the ark. The Levites are not allowed to touch the ark or any of the holy furniture, any of the holy items. And it told the priests, don't let the Levites anywhere near where they can touch these things, because if they do, they'll die. So when Uzzah died, it was, um, that was what God said. You touch it, you die. Um, he was not unfair. He was just. Um, but you just, if you just say, well, my God's a holy God, then you have some things that you have to resolve. <clears throat> the third place where um, his holiness is emphasized three times is Psalm 99, which is why we talked about turning there initially. So looking at Psalm 99, let's just go ahead and read the whole thing because it's spread out. It says, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved or probably better shaken. Let the earth be shaken. The Lord is sovereign. He reigns as king. Just knowing that should cause us to tremble. It says that he dwells between the cherubim. Some translations will say above the cherubim, and that would be mostly based. There's no no uh, preposition here in Hebrew to tell where he dwells in connection to the cherubim. The cherubim. Cherubim is how you'd say it in Hebrew. Um, but... Um, other passages like Ezekiel 1.26, we're not going to go there. Ezekiel 10.19, Ezekiel 11.22, and there's others where there's other statements made that do reveal that he is above. So I would probably go with above. He's seated above the, or enthroned above the cherubim. The fact that he is enthroned above these amazing beings should also cause us to shake. Verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. And he is high above all the peoples. The Lord is exalted. He's great in Zion. Zion being the place of his temple. Verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Okay. Now we see the first holy. He is holy. He is holy. The Lord's name is great and awesome. The word there awesome in Hebrew actually means being feared. Being feared. That's another word that we've kind of corrupted in our usage. All kinds of things are awesome in this, in our society today. But in the biblical sense, in the word that's being translated here out of Hebrew, it is talking about fearfulness, being feared, that God is the one to be feared. Why? Because he is holy. Verse 4, the king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. 
The Lord loves justice, established equity. Equity is, uh, could be translated fairness or moral uprightness. It's, uh, the Hebrew word is built on the root of yashar, which means something that is straight and right. Um, and uh, righteousness is justice and righteousness, what is right and just. These are things that God stresses in knowing him. We looked at this last week. I think it was last week, uh, Jeremiah 9:24. It's been recently one of the teachings recently. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his, holy, at his footstool. footstool. He is holy. This is a command to make high, to raise up Yahweh our God, and to worship, the word translated worship, actually means to bow yourself down. In fact, most of the time you come across the word worship in, in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it is this word that tells you to bow yourself. Or somebody did worship and they, they bowed themselves. And that is the, the biblical posture of worship, to humble ourselves, bowing before him. And even in the New Testament, the word that is most commonly translated worship means the same thing, to bow oneself. <clears throat> Our modern word worship comes from the Old English worth-ship, worth-ship, and originally referred to the action of human beings in expressing homage to God because he is worthy of it, worth-ship. His footstool in this Reference here is probably uh, to the temple, the place of the temple. Now, there's other things that are sometimes called the footstool. Jesus said, the earth, uh, do not swear by heaven because that's where God's throne is. Do not swear by the earth because that is his footstool. It's also used in Isaiah 66, 1, uh, refers to the earth as his footstool. Of course, it also says in Luke 20 and some other places where his enemies becoming the footstool of his feet, and so there's different places. But a lot of times in the scriptures, and in, in this place too, it's referring to the place of the temple. Why worship him? Why be in fear of him? Why bow yourself down before him? Because he is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon Yahweh, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloud, cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinances and the ordinance he gave them. <clears throat> Moses is the intermediator, intermediary who communicated the law to the people. And Aaron was the first priesthood intermediary. Samuel was a priest and a judge and a prophet. And all of these called on the name of the Lord in times of crisis. And he answered them and helped them. For that reason, he is to be praised. Since it is Mother's Day, I think I'll digress just a little bit here. You look at Samuel and you look at his life and I don't know there's really, I can't right off the top of my head think of anything that says Samuel did wrong. And, but you look at how he was raised. He was raised at the tabernacle with Eli the priest. Now Eli does not have a good track with, record with raising children. His sons were wicked and corrupt. And in fact, God had to get rid of them too. Um, but Samuel didn't turn out that way. And I kind of wonder if that wasn't because of Hannah, his mother, who came and every year would bring a new robe for him as he was outgrowing them and everything. And I wonder if it was his mother's influence that helped Samuel to stay uh, to the right until the day that he uh, came to know Yahweh. And how did he do that? If you read uh, the first part of Samuel, you find out he did it by the word of the Lord. That was the word of Yahweh that 
caused him to know him. But I think there may have been some other's influence. And same way with Moses. He was raised in Pharaoh's house was by Pharaoh's daughter. But Pharaoh's daughter paid Jochebed, that's his mother's name, that's in Exodus chapter 6. Um, she paid Moses' mother to nurse him, and so she got to keep him until the day he was weaned anyway, and maybe her building into his life also um, affected, affected him. So, 7 and 8, chapters, uh, or verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Not only is he the God who hears, but he's also the God who speaks. He spoke to each one of these three men. And in Hebrews 3.2, it says that Moses was faithful in all of his house, uh, except for the issue of striking the rock, which was in Roman, uh, Numbers chapter 20, verse 11. Uh, and because they did that, they weren't allowed to enter the land. Besides that, they were faithful. So God's, they spoke, God answered and forgave. Now, <clears throat> verse 8 You answered them, O Lord, our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Now, that kind of sounds like a name, God who forgives. In Hebrew, it says, Eil no se. Eil no se, just two words. Eil and no se is the second word. And it means a God carrying, a God bearing, a God lifting. It's a word that's used 659 times in the Old Testament. But there's only about 18 times that it's ever translated forgive. And so when it is talking about forgiveness or translated as forgiveness, it's usually with the concept, the idea of a removal or a carrying away of guilt and its penalties. And then the last verse, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. The command to repeat is repeated to exalt, meaning to, to raise high, to lift up, make high, Yahweh our God. Uh, why? Because Yahweh our God is holy. And so we see in verse 3, he is holy. Verse 5, he is holy. Verse 9, he is holy. We see in this psalm that the Lord is um, different, separate from humankind. His worshipers are to acknowledge that quality which sets him apart. That's what holiness is, as a separatedness. He is not tainted by sin. Um, At the same time, he's a God who's interested in what is right, concerned about justice and fairness. He's a God who forgives his people, gives them guidance. God is the only one who is intrinsically holy intrinsically separated from sin transcendent over creation not like the star wars force which is uh that's a whole different thing he is not in he's he's not dependent upon creation but all of creation is held together and is dependent uh, upon him the cool thing is that this attribute of god his holiness is a, that's a, an attribute he wants to share with us. Uh, we are not inherently, intrinsically holy. Uh, we have been co-conspirators in treason against the Most High King. We were created as image bearers, but we've taken that image and given false witness to that image to all of creation. But yet God has commanded 
Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, pick this up in the New Testament. But as he who called you is holy, also you also be holy in, in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. We're going to store those words in the back of your head. We're going to come back to those two words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, or sorry, 4, 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. The word sanctification is based upon the same word in Greek. The word is hagios, and this word is based off of that, our holiness. This is the will of God. People want to know what God's will is. God's will is that you are holy. Now you know. That's what God wants. He wants you to be holy. And beyond that, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Without holiness, without sanctification, Translation might have either one of those words, holiness, sanctification. You will not see the Lord. You will not see the Lord without holiness, without sanctification. Now, for Israel, this primarily meant that living, uh, they're supposed to live as a nation set apart. This is why it was such an abhorrent thing to Samuel whenever they asked for a king. They said, We want a king like all the nations around us. You're not supposed to be like all the nations around you. You're supposed to be a separated nation, a holy nation, one that belongs to God, a peculiar people. Uh, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted to be like everybody else. That was why it was a real problem. For New Testament believers, though, it is living holy lives under the direction of, and aid of the Holy Spirit. As we walk according to the Spirit, we are made more and more Christ-like and subsequently reflect more and more the majesty of our Savior. We are to live separate from the world. So, since we're not inherently or intrinsically holy, but yet we're, we're commanded to be holy, how God forgives. How does he forgive? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 tell us we're saved by faith in Jesus. He paid the debt for our sin. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness that, quote, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He could be just because he took out all his holy wrath against sin on his son. He could be the justifier because the debt has been paid and out of his love for us, uh, he can um, bring the one who has faith in Jesus to, uh, to this place of being holy. He is just. He is holy. Because he's loving, he's provided a way for us to receive forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in verse 15, it goes on to say that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. This forgiveness is available through faith in Jesus and receiving him. After that, the next thing for us is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. We're supposed to die to ourselves, but we're still alive. We die to our old way of life. We're supposed to live for him. And it goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world. The old um, 
Berkeley edition, I think is what it was. He said it was a paraphrase. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's a pretty good word picture for what it's talking about. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll know what God's perfect good and perfect will is. And so we're supposed to walk in the way of holiness. We're supposed to to, uh, walk in this way of righteousness. We're supposed to die to ourselves, live for him. God is holy. He calls us to be holy. We cannot see God without holiness, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Jesus came to make his holiness available to us. So wherever you are, either to receive him or to die to self, that's, that's where we uh, should go. So as the worship team comes up for the closing song, I want us to just consider one more psalm. This is Psalm 119. We're just going to look at the first verse. It says, Blessed are the ones whose way is unblemished who walk in the law of the Lord. The word for blessed actually comes from the word asher, which means happy. Um, and it's, uh, it's plural, and it is in construct. So it's the happinesses of. The happinesses of the ones whose way is unblemished or blameless or complete. This is the same word that's used for when they brought the lamb for a sacrifice, and the priest had to look at it and make sure there was, uh, there was, there was no... Uh, defect in it so this there's this way uh the ones who walk in this non-defective way who walk in the law of the lord a friend of mine in sioux falls recently was sharing this and so i'm going to share some of the same not it's not a quote but just a concept here god has told us the way of happiness and blessing it is for those walking the blameless route how do we know the blameless route it is the way walking in the way of the law of the Lord. If you're not walking in obedience to God's word, how can you expect to be truly blessed and happy and have joy? Everyone wants to be happy. The problem is they don't know how to reach it. The psalmist knows how. It is in the blameless way, the holy way. What is the definition of the blameless way? The way of the walking in the word of the Lord. The world says happiness is in the way of fornication or in the way of porn, that those things will make you happy. Selfishness will make you happy. Entertainment will make you happy. Fads and styles will make you happy. Those things do not satisfy. Those things do not make us happy. Those things do not progress us in our walk with the Lord. And in fact, we have to be um, wary of these things. Uh, a quote from this same, same friend up in South Dakota, he said, to make disciples of Jesus, you often have to You often have to awaken disciples from the influence of society and culture. You've probably heard the story of the frog in the pot. If you try to put a frog in a pot that's boiling, he'll he'll scald him. He won't like it. But if you put him in a pot that's lukewarm, he'll like it okay. And then you turn up the heat, he won't recognize it's getting hotter and eventually they'll kill him. In the same way, we're surrounded by the pot of hot water is our society. We need to be wary of our society and the influence of our society um, and the rising temperatures, it is getting hotter out there. And we need to not be uh, taken in by those things. So we need to be in the word, be transformed, not conformed, um, and to walk the holy path of blessing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice, your provision for our sins so that we can be forgiven and live forever with you and with the Father. Thank you for wanting to share this attribute the central attribute of holiness with us by paying the price for our sin. 
Our Father, we ask that you would fill us and equip us by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, please have your work in us. Use your word to help us to walk in your way, the way of your word, the blameless way, the way of holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.